Please be seated. Like John said, my name is Tim Fox. I'm a minister in Austin, Texas, a city famous for its bats and its breakfast tacos. If you ever come, give me a call. I'll buy you a cheap taco. Uh, it's really wonderful and special for us to be here, for my family to be here. Uh, I did a PhD at St. Mary's about 10 years ago. Uh, we were very involved with this church, and it's meant a lot to us. Uh, I have spoken often of you uh, to my church back home. Uh, we pray for you. You, in many ways, are an encouragement to us and an inspiration for us, uh, even though you don't know it in many ways. Uh, we are this morning uh, hearing from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you're on page 553. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the book. That's page 553. Uh, I'll be preaching in the morning services the next two weeks. Uh, today we're going to be doing the, the beginning of Ecclesiastes. Next week we'll do the last paragraph of Ecclesiastes to try to uh, cover the whole entire thing. But today is the introduction. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come this morning to hear and receive your word because it's more desirable than gold and sweeter than honey. Even when your word comes to us uh, with sharp and hard things to say, we come this morning as your people with faith, trusting that what you have to say to us is good for us. Help us to see your goodness, most of all in the goodness of your son Jesus, who has come to give us new life, for in him all the treasures of your wisdom are found. And we pray for these things in his name. Amen. If you were hoping that while well, your pastor was on holiday for the next two weeks, I would take the time to talk to you about 10 steps to becoming a better you, or five keys to a happy family, 
or 12 pillars of a peaceful mindset, you are about to be very disappointed. What we have instead is the preacher of Ecclesiastes lobbing a grenade into idyllic St. Andrews. He is disturbing our summer slumber. He is decimating our navel-gazing narratives. The book ends with a reminder that the words of the wise are like goads. You know what goads are? Sharp sticks you poke an animal with to get it to move where you want it to go. It means that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of God's word, is meant to be like these sharp sticks that provoke us in the direction that we're meant to go. This is one of the darkest and most challenging books in the entire Bible. It's meant to indirectly show us God's goodness and mercy by directly focusing on the tedium and the futility and the absurdity of life in a world that has rejected him. But in many ways, this book is God's antidote for all kinds of frustrations in all stages of life. This book can give joy and wisdom to the disillusioned teenager, to the exhausted parent, to the 20-something drifting from job to job, to the 40-something disappointed with how much he's accomplished, to those who look with profound regret on a dying marriage or a declining body. All these people can receive encouragement and wisdom in the midst of life's many frustrations. So we're going to spend the next two weeks being goaded by this strange, dark book. But as we do that, we need to keep in mind that its ultimate point is positive. It's meant to show us the true nature of this fallen world, to show us how to truly enjoy God's gifts in the midst of it, and ultimately to create in us a longing for the renewal and the redemption of Jesus by leaving us aching for something different, something truly new. But we're going to start with the introduction, with this poem found in verses 1 to 11, which is going to hit on the primary themes of the whole book, which if you are able to this week, I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. It wouldn't take you that long. Uh, but the introduction here basically covers the whole thing for us. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but there's really nothing positive in this introduction. Uh, God himself is not even mentioned. The opening of the book is meant to disturb us. God will become more prominent as the book goes on until it ends with a clear focus on him. But here we are introduced to the author in verse 1. Uh, you hear his basic argument in verses 2 and 3, and then he supports his arguments and responds to an objection with the poetry of verses 4 to 11. So let me read verses 1 to 3 again for you, and then we're going to talk about some key terms and ideas that will keep popping up. Listen to this again. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? We don't really know who the preacher is. Traditionally, it's considered to be King Solomon, but the book never actually says that. Uh, And there's some things in the book that don't quite sound like him or his situation, but whoever he is, uh, he's a king in Jerusalem. But the word we translate here as preacher uh, more woodenly could be translated as collector or gatherer. Uh, One scholar suggests that the best way to translate it is as the sage, because the emphasis is not so much on the fact that he's got a crowd of people around him, but rather on the wisdom that he's writing for God's people after his own lifetime of painful reflection and painful experience. Verse 2 comes as a great shock because it's so grim with this word vanity repeated five times. Vanity of vanities is similar to a phrase you may have heard if you've uh, spent some time around the Old Testament, the holy of holies. Uh, This is how Hebrew really wants to, when it wants to emphasize something or maximize it, it does this with words. It means something like totally vain, the most vain. Uh, It's a word that literally means vapor, like a mist or a fog that is impossible to clutch and quick to fade. It's one of the most common words in the Bible for an idol, since in the biblical way of thinking, an idol, anything besides God that we worship and depend upon, uh, in the Bible's way of thinking, an idol is really a nothing. It will never satisfy you. Uh, This word, vanity, pops up over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Uh, The sage uses a rhetorical question in verse 3 to give the reason that all things are vapor. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Uh, The answer, of course, is nothing. If all things are ultimately vaporous, then there's nothing really to be gained. The word for gain is going to pop up over and over again in Ecclesiastes. It means something like profit or benefit. Uh, It refers first and foremost to financial and material profit, but metaphorically it goes beyond this. Uh, It's something like what we mean when we talk about what we're getting out of life. What are we gaining from life? Another word that you will keep seeing if you read Ecclesiastes this week is this word toil. You see that in verse 3. It's a fairly negative word. It does not just mean job. It does not just mean career, uh, even though our jobs are often marked by toil. It means something instead like trouble, anxiety, striving. Maybe you could translate it as misery or sorrow. And then finally, there's this phrase, under the sun. Under the sun. This is a very important phrase to understand what's going on in Ecclesiastes. It's a way of describing life down here, so to speak, life down here in a fallen world, a life where we are toiling and striving in a cosmos that lies under God's curse and God's displeasure. It's a painful experience. It's a baffling way of life common to all people through history, even God's own people. But there's a sense, too, in which living under the sun means living without reference to God. Living uh, in our modern vocabulary, we would say living in a secular way, living in a materialistic way, uh, as if this world were the only world that existed or the only world that mattered. That kind of life is an under-the-sun kind of life. 
The pain and the darkness and the absurdity that are so prominent in Ecclesiastes are particularly true for those who live like God does not exist or as if he does not matter at all. Uh, This is something that the sage himself, he goes on to tell us, it's something that he himself tried for a while. Uh, In many ways, it's what a great majority of people in the Western world today are trying to do. Our world fundamentally believes that life under the sun is the only life there is. But the Bible tells us that this frustrated and futile life under the sun is rooted in God's curse that we hear about in Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve rebel against God by breaking his commandment, even though he has provided them with all kinds of delights and pleasures and gifts to enjoy forever. And so he responds by saying that life itself is going to become a form of death. He says that the world is going to turn against us, that our work is going to be very difficult and frustrating, that relationships and family are going to be very painful and contentious, and that to top it all off, everyone is going to physically die at the end of such a painful, deathly life under the sun. The Apostle Paul, in the first century, describes the fallen, frustrated nature of our world in his letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he says that the default mode of the human heart looks like this. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8 to say that God has subjected the world to futility and that this world is in bondage to corruption, that it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. And so you see, all through the Bible, from beginning to end, this world of profitless toil under the sun is marked by futility and foolishness, by suffering, and by shackles. And Ecclesiastes is plumbing these dark depths for us. In verse 3, the sage says that there's no gain for mankind with all the toil at which he's toiling under the sun. And so he says, everything you see, everything you touch, everything you experience, it's vapor. You can't grab it, let alone keep it. Look at verses 4 to 7. The sage supports this somber thesis by pointing to the evidence of the world all around us. In verse 4, he points out that a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Humans all die, one generation after the next, and yet the world carries on as before. The world is indifferent to our feeble efforts and accomplishments. In verses 5 to 7, he uses three metaphors from natural phenomena to highlight, highlight this endless feedback loop of life under the sun. Uh, First, he points to the sun, and he says it just goes up and down, up and down, day after day. The same thing never ends. He says even the sun is exhausted by the tedious repetition of it all. The end of the verse says literally that the sun is panting to get back to where it started. Uh, Maybe like some of us feel when you've climbed a long stairway. Uh, It's very different, and it's much more negative than the way that other parts of the Bible do light 
in God's creation. Maybe some of you know Psalm 19, which says that the sun is like a runner joyfully completing his course through the heavens. This is a much darker metaphor for the sun. Uh, the second uh, natural phenomenon that he points to is in verse 6. He says that the wind goes south only to go north over and over and over again. It's turning around. It's going back. It's just trapped in this vortex of going around and around and around. It's stuck in the same rut, never actually arriving, never actually resting anywhere. Do you ever feel like that? I do. Uh, third, in verse 7, he looks to the rivers. He says they're always moving, they're always flowing, but they don't accomplish anything. They look like they're filling up the oceans, but they are not, and they cannot. The seas just stay the same as always. So he says there's no profit or gain to any of our toil. The earth remains indifferent to our pathetically short lives. He says not even the sun or the wind or the waters with all of their power and strength and majesty, not even they can accomplish anything. Uh, verse 8, are you having fun yet? If you're on holiday, I hope you enjoyed it. In verse 8, we shift from natural to human experiences. Uh, he says, we're stuck on the same kind of hamster wheel. He says, all things are full of weariness. He says, a man can't utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. And so here you move from the sun and the wind and the water to the mouth, the eye, and the ear. The sage says that all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Everywhere we turn, we are disappointed and frustrated and disillusioned. And because of this, we're tired. We're bored. We're numb. In spite of all of our human ingenuity and technology and expertise, at the end of the day, we're like small, baffled children. We're unable to meaningfully articulate what we're experiencing. And we're unable to make sense of it all to ourselves, let alone to other people. Under the sun, we remain fundamentally ignorant and isolated. The sage says that our eye is not satisfied with seeing no matter how many Instagrams, how many places, how many bodies are flitting before you. And just like the seas can't by, be filled by the rivers, he says that our ears can't be filled by what we're hearing. Uh, not by the latest podcasts, not by the finest education, not by the most sublime music. None of it ever satisfies for good. We always want more and more of it. No amount of sex or money or status will leave us content. I once heard of a best-selling world-famous novelist who was asked toward the end of his career what he wished he knew when he was young. He said he wished that somebody had told him that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. There's no profit, the sage says, to our toil under the sun. You see it in nature. You see it in our own desires. But now in verses 9 to 11, he says, you see it too in history, in human history. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Many people today live as if the present is all that matters. 
Uh, we ignore or we sneer at those who came before us in the past. And we spend and we borrow and we consume with little regard for those who will come after us in the future. But notice that the sage doesn't even hardly mention the present, the part that we're living in. It's almost like it doesn't matter. He says that fundamentally anything that's going to happen has already happened, so that really there's nothing new. Human nature, human families, human society, human government don't really ever change. COVID-19 was just another virus wreaking havoc like they've always done. Elon Musk is just one more rich guy buying stuff like they've always done. The politicians and the bureaucrats of the S&P or the G7 or the UN are just promising that they and their friends can fix everything like people like them have always done. In the grand scheme of things, they're not anything new. He says there's nothing new under the sun. This feudal world is stuck in the same kind of rut as the wind. The sage entertains one objection in verse 10. He says, someone might say, but look, here's something that really is new. Uh, I recently read a book about the Russian Revolution. The Bolsheviks really did think, they really did insist, that this was a new stage in history. This was an evolution. Humanity was moving forward unstoppably into the promised land of progress. Uh, but the sage says to the Bolsheviks, no, it's not new. It has already been in the ages before us. We've been there. We've done that. But then in verse 11, he raises one final word to stop anybody else who might claim that this time is different. He says, we're all going to die. And after we die, we're all going to be forgotten. Uh, this is very different, isn't it? It's very different than the widespread mentality today that all of us can make a difference, that all of us can be special. He says, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Uh, chances are, a hundred years after our death, none of us will be remembered by anybody, not even by our descendants. I mean, how many of us here this morning uh, know the names of all of our great-grandparents? Rob Purvis doesn't count. Uh, if you are lucky, maybe in a few hundred years, there will be some AI bot scrolling through everything you've ever Googled or everything you've ever texted. And maybe in that sense, one or two of you will be remembered. Uh, maybe there's somebody alive in St. Andrews today who will be widely remembered in a thousand years. But even then, that's only going to happen if people care enough to record it and learn about it. And even if uh, you want to be really positive about things and we want to tell ourselves, no, no, I'm really making a difference and people are going to remember me, uh, I will be known and taught in history books. If we take things out really far, if we believe that this cosmos is the only one that matters, the only one that exists, then eventually what you get is the heat death of the universe. And there will be nobody, nobody around to be remembered, no one to remember. There's nothing new. Everything will be forgotten. The experiences of both nature and humanity show that we are stuck in this endlessly tedious and unsatisfying rut. Uh, in some ways, if you're local around here, I sense that many of you are groaning at the arrival of the Lammas Fair. 
uh, but take wisdom from it. In many ways, the sage is saying that your life is a lot like a lemosphere. It's sparkly in its own way. It's exciting in its own little way. But ultimately, it's fleeting. It's fading. No one will remember. So there's no gain, the sage says, to all of our toil at which we toil under the sun. Are you goaded this morning? Are you disturbed? This poem is meant to make us uncomfortable. It cuts at the very foundation of our culture in many ways. This assumption that progress is natural. Uh, this assumption that we're able to change the world if we just throw enough brain power and money at it. This assumption that we can overcome all the limits of our bodies and of nature. This assumption that if you work really, really hard, you can leave a legacy. You can do it through art or charity or work or family. This is disturbing because it cuts straight against all of those things. The main point of the passage today is to be disturbed and provoked by the futility of our lives in this world. And so let's not rush past that. Let's seriously and soberly ponder the vanity of life under the sun. If we would become wise, let's not mask over the darkness and the frustration of this world through amusement and busyness and the lamisphere. But in an odd way, this is encouraging. It's encouraging to me. You don't have to pretend like everything is lovely. You don't have to sprinkle flowers over the graves all around us. There really is something profoundly wrong with me and with us and with the world. The Bible is very honest about this. And yet this goaded discontentment should ultimately lead us to look up. Disturbed and discontent under the sun, we are meant to look up beyond the sun into heaven itself. We are meant to look up from this world where we slave away under the weary course of the panting sun to God. That's how Ecclesiastes will progress as a book and where it's going to end, which we'll cover next week. And I hope you'll come back before you get too mad at me and discouraged by what I've said. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, Jesus makes the same point as Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He says this, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? You see what he's saying? Jesus is saying there is no ultimate gain to that kind of life, an under-the-sun kind of life. And yet he says just before that, that if you lose your life for his sake, you'll gain it. You hear what he's saying? Jesus is saying everybody loses. Everyone is a loser. The question is, whose way of losing are you going to choose? The world's way of losing, try to gain everything in this world as quickly as you can before you die, ultimately disappoints you and frustrates you. You, in the end, lose everything. 
Jesus' way of losing, there is losing. Jesus says, you have to give up your life. You have to give up everything for me. But he says, in the end, you'll gain everything. I'll give it all to you. The Apostle Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 that in Christ our labor is not in vain. Because we are living in a world that has been invaded by the resurrection of Jesus. Even though there is nothing new under the sun, God himself has come down to us from heaven to renew this frustrating world. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you hear how often Jesus there talks about life, meaning, satisfaction, come down to us from heaven? The incarnation of Jesus, God becoming man, the incarnation of Jesus is new. The sage of Ecclesiastes did not yet know or imagine that in Jesus, God himself would enter into this sinful, cursed world. That God himself would share in humanity's own futility and frailty in order to rescue us from the bondage of all the weary people who put their hope in him. And so let's seriously consider our own futility and our own frailty. That's the main point of the passage today. You are futile. You are frail. Don't run past that. But ultimately, and even more so, savor what Jesus has done in the incarnation and in the resurrection. Jesus has has shown the light of heaven into the darkness of this world with God's own goodness and wisdom. He's renewing all those who trust in him. He's making us into a new family. He's making this world into a new creation. He's brought us life from heaven. In him, we are destined for a transcendent world of life and love. Let's pray. Father, we do mourn the darkness of this world, and yet we celebrate your entering into it in your son Jesus. We rejoice to know that this world and all of its futility is not all there is, that there is a life beyond the sun that has now entered into this world under the sun. Renew us, Father, we pray in your son Jesus by the Holy Spirit by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that even in the midst of darkness and frustration, we might more and more put our confidence in you. We might more and more see your goodness and your wisdom in all things, even when we don't understand. And Father, we pray that you would equip us as your people to bring your life and your hope and your wisdom into this world with all of its futility. For we pray it confidently in the name of our friend and brother Jesus. Amen.